You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher. It's just ticked over March 23rd here. But March 22nd was Australia's overshoot day. So I want to reflect a little bit on that in this episode. I can remember I get to travel from time to time when travel was a thing. uh, And domestically mostly, obviously, because I'm not a big name. But I do get invitations and I do appreciate those. And I was uh, invited to a, a Baptist church in Wagga Wagga to help launch a an ecological ministry. I must catch up and see how they're going. And I spoke at a Christian school and I did a local uh, Christian radio program. But I um, I went up and spent the evening with an old schoolmate, which was really good. Um, and then I got in the car and it was dark. It was you know, mid-evening. And I went uh, to stay at a sheep property, a small sheep property, where the person from the church who was hosting me and organised the event now, I drove down uh, dark country roads, and I don't know if, uh, as a city dweller, if you've spent much time out of the big big city and you're away from built-up areas and there's no artificial light, and all you've got is the, the night sky, and it was, it was an interesting experience because there'd been a, a big blow, there was a weather event and rain, there was a lot of wind, and there was a lot of... Uh, tree branches, etc., on the road, and it was unpaved road, and all I could see was the trees either side, and I'm trying to use Google Maps to, to navigate, and I eventually find the turn off, and there's these big trees all over the place, and I'm slowing right down, and it's just, I thought I was in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I'd really gone well and truly into the country, and as I say, there was tree branches blown on the road and the road was really rough and it was just dark and it was just my headlights. When I woke up the next day, I discovered, as you often do when you're driving down a back lane in farming country, is that the trees were just along the side of the road and everything was open paddock. So my illusions of of being almost in the middle of nowhere, in a sense, um, which can sometimes be really refreshing particularly if you've you've, um, come from the city, and I grew up a fair bit of my youth in the country, that I was was surrounded by fields. Uh, What I thought was this, I guess, not foreboding, but powerful sense of being surrounded by the vastness of the Australian bush was an illusion. And what this is meant to illustrate is that if we think about the world in which we live, we often assume that it's boundless. 
And by that I mean, you know, you throw rubbish away. I don't, but you get the picture. You throw rubbish away and you think about away as being a place. But there's not really an away. It always ends up somewhere. I may have mentioned in the previous program that one of Rachel Carson's great contributions to the um, environmental movement was her book, um, Silent Spring, and she talked about DDT and its impact upon bird life. Well, I think I mentioned that DDT has been found in the shells of penguins in Antarctica, but it's never been applied there. And we're finding pieces of plastic at the bottom of the ocean and mid-oceanic trenches, you know, talking kilometres down. So there is no away, and the world which, particularly when you're a kid, and I used to watch a lot of wildlife documentaries and just be blown away, and I still am, to be honest, the world is smaller than we think. We've made it so. Uh, we use more of the world in which we live more and more all the time. Uh, we've grasped off the wisdom and power while rejecting the divine wisdom of limits. And that's, I guess, in a sense, one of the pictures or one of the ways in which you can think about Genesis chapter 3. So Earth Overshoot Day is a reminder of our excesses, particularly those of Western society. Well, mostly those of Western society, let's be honest. Its definition, it turns out, is ambiguous and, and problematic. Marking the date, quote, uh, from this is from the website, when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services in a given year exceeds what Earth can generate in that year. Now, the Earth is in many ways a regenerating system. It cycles carbon dioxide through the system. It cycles energy from the sun. Sunlight comes in. Heat goes out. Some of that's trapped by naturally occurring greenhouse gases, keeps the planet above freezing which is a good thing. That's how life began. Uh, ocean currents and the atmosphere circulate around heat. So there are places on the globe, and I, I talked about this in a previous episode, that would be far cooler if there weren't ocean currents and would make agriculture impossible for those locations. So the earth regenerates, it heals, it circulates things around, and for a long time it's kept its temperature within a narrowly defined uh, range which has been suitable for life certainly for the uh, the emergence of human civilization so we can call it Gaia we can call it Mother Earth even um, and the Bible from Genesis through Leviticus to Romans doesn't shy away from giving the earth itself or herself maybe uh, agency and responsibility and I'll, I'll talk about a couple of things shortly the the language of resources and services seems far too economic and mechanistic even if it's, it's true, and it's probably more Christian, and this might shock some Christians, but it's more Christian to talk about gifts, and yes, of a divine origin, but also gifts shared by other parts of this planet Earth we call home, and reciprocities, the way in which things um, work. So plants give us, uh, take up carbon dioxide and give us oxygen. Without plants, there would be no animal life. Animals die, and they uh, give up their nutrients to the soil again, feeding the plants. Uh, economic um, approaches are useful to a degree. Certainly the whole idea of ecosystem services is an important one. As I've just highlighted, we get oxygen. If you don't have any trees around a, um, a watershed, or, you know, around a dam, 
then you don't, you're not purifying the water that we ultimately drink. So there are those kind of ecosystem services. Trees are worth far more in the ground than they are cut up to make matchsticks or wood chip or so on. And when I say more than, I'm thinking about the total cost, the total value, which is very often left out in economic consideration. But let's run with this, this way of thinking, even though it's a little bit myopic or limited in, in its... Um, it's span. Now, Earth Overshoot Day is a projection, and last year it fell on August 22nd globally. So this date measures the number of days of the Earth, uh, the year on the Earth that the Earth's biocapacity, that is the production of natural quote-unquote resources, be they trees for timber and, and for fuel and uh, absorb our carbon dioxide and so on, or our soil production, which happens at an incredibly low rate, is enough to provide for humanity's ecological footprint. Uh, and that simply means the land and the sea required to provide these resources. So how much ocean do you need to provide the fish for our fisheries? How much land do you need for agriculture? Um, and so on. So the remainder of the year corresponds to that overshoot. So last year was August 22nd, which means through September, October, November, December, the earth was in deficit. And if, of course, you can't keep doing that, imagine if you took that approach to your bank account, you'd soon be broke. You'd soon have nothing in the account. You wouldn't be able to buy food. You wouldn't be able to pay rent. And we're able to wave this away, I think, because we just don't look at the future that's coming. We don't take the broader picture. We don't have that global vision that says, okay, the things that I'm enjoying now have an impact upon the future because they're taking away. And as a society, we're shocking at recycling the resources that we have. So it's been a big thing uh, that China's refused to take plastic resources, uh, recycling material from other nations. And where I work, it's not unusual to see uh, there's been a few times where this has happened. The tire dumps have gone up in smoke. And let me tell you, it's a noxious fume. People are being evacuated, have to uh, move offices or work from home or so on. So the fact that we can talk about the Earth ecosystem as a whole as something that recycles its resources, that's the whole logic behind the circular economy where you recycle the things that we consume and if it's something that can't be replenished, then you're very, very cautious about using it in the first place. But in addition to talking about a global overshoot day, we can talk about each country having its own overshoot day. And somewhat cynically and thoroughly unsurprisingly, Australia falls 12th. Behind countries like the United States, Canada, Qatar and the UAE. Now, Luxembourg's date comes second, and I suspect that's because it's a tiny country. So some things are really a function of the, the range of resources that you have to draw on. And others, very clearly, have a lot to say about the kind of society that you're running or operating. And, and globally, by and large, that's um, a form of capitalism that's obsessed with growth and is very linear. That's the story of stuff type picture that resources are Cheap resources plus cheap labour to produce cheap goods that have uh, an expensive impact upon the planet. Now, there was a recent report, it would be a great thing to go into in another time, that shows that 19 of Australia's ecosystems are collapsing. Uh, 
Now, I'm not going to go into defining an ecosystem now, but consider it a, a snapshot, a small section of the Earth. They're clearly not isolated from the rest of the planet. But there are things like the Great Barrier Reef, which is um, based upon coral polyps growing hard and soft coral bodies on which you get in an otherwise uh, nutrient-poor environment a system where you can recycle uh, these nutrients in a, an efficient manner. So warm water contains less, less oxygen than cold water. Upwelling regions of the oceans where cold water comes up from lower down will contain a lot of nutrients. So you've got a very rich, productive environment. And most of the, the rich fisheries around the globe are in these upwelling regions. But something like the reef, uh, can, the warm waters can, are going to be relatively oxygen poor. But they're very vibrant, um, biodiverse systems that are efficient at recycling, just as tropical rainforests are. Or you've got systems like um, Shark Bay and a kelp and alpine forests. And clearly kelp forests, particularly those around Tasmania at the moment, are very much heat stressed. Uh, we've seen uh, collapse of various fisheries around there and the kelp forests disappearing. And they're right at the bottom of a whole complex ecosystem. So the kelp goes and everything else goes um, as well. And, and of course, um, this again is not particularly surprising. We're seeing unnecessary coal mines being championed and given special political favours. We're seeing koala habitats sacrificed. We're seeing our own water supplies put under threat by, by mining. Australia is a champion when it comes down to chopping down trees and killing around wildlife. We are a hot spot for land clearing. And that has numerous consequences for greenhouse gas emissions by losing the carbon sinks of the vegetation and the soil and releasing the carbon that's there. Um, the ecosystem services are purifying water, the uh, cooling effect, obviously, a um, whole manner of things. So we come in 12th and the 22nd of March, and that's just gone. So we're now in deficit as we move on. Where lies the problem? Uh, we'll talk more about this after break, but it, clearly in our context, it's, it's, it's quite clear settler colonialism is embedded in the idea of capitalism. Of course, I guess they're born about the same time, aren't they? Because what saw Europe kick forward, but it was the rich resources that it extracted from, quote-unquote, the new world. And you get the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius, that myth that's allowed... Um, Europeans to abuse this continent, the lands which we now call Australia for over two centuries, and the peoples who lived here. And all the associated things that sound, you sound like a screaming lefty when you raise, but a true white male human exceptionalism, exceptionalism in particular, and um, that's not to engage in misandry, that's not to be ashamed, particularly of having white skin or being a man, but the system that we call patriarchy um, is an abusive one of women, of indigenous peoples, and ultimately, if you think about it, men ourselves, particularly those who don't fit a particular, and I'm not necessarily endorsing anything of it, you know, read a little bit between the lines, whatever, heteronormativity and, and particular ways of being masculine. But the fact that it it arose in a context that um, demystified, de, um, 
almost the word I'm looking for, uh, secularized, for want of a better way of putting it, nature and associate, you know, and, and took away its agency. I've said this many times before, the kind of Descartian automata. Uh, I think, therefore, I am, as a Western male, um, nature is not capable of that. It's just mere automata. Women are closer to nature, they're more irrational than men. You see where that goes. And the whole system driven forward with an under, underlying logic that's never questioned um, has led to the distraction that we see. More of that after the break. Welcome back to the program after that beautiful musical interlude. I've been pondering the idea of Earth Overshoot Day and looking at the problematic issues of, of casting it purely in terms of resources, although it is a valuable and a useful way to do it. It's just not the whole of the picture by any way, shape or means. And doing the usual, and I realise not in depth, that's for another time when I can get the reading done that needs to be done of the problem of the system of capitalism and how it's tied up in white male human exceptionalism and the kind of dualisms of us versus them, whether it's men versus women, whites versus um, indigenous peoples, humans versus animals. Now, as I say, none of this is to suggest that the idea of owning the means to uh, produce things uh, or that I think that it's a great idea to go back to some halcyon pre-industrial age is what I'm upholding. The fact that we have agriculture, the fact that agriculture occurs in most societies, including here in Australia amongst the Aboriginal peoples, and that's the great discovery and the great um, thing about Dark Emu by um, Bruce Pascoe. It's well worth a read, and I say that to myself as much as anything to get back to it. Um, the fact that in most places the union of humans and animals has meant the spread of certain diseases uh, such that there's no going back to a pre-industrial age where you can't mass produce vaccines and we've seen that in COVID and any suggestion to the contrary is um, hugely misanthropic and to be thoroughly rejected. But nonetheless there are there are ways of going about it and if the underlying uh, philosophy is such that it's all about he who dies with the most toys wins to greatly simplify what I'm trying to say um, you know that we need to reconsider the narrative many things will change but the idea that um, the idea of, of producing things selling things in of itself is a bad idea uh, it's more about limits and ideology I think. Anyway, I'm rambling. Well, what's new? You're used to this by now if you've been listening to me all the time. But now more than ever, I think, in response to all of this, one of the first places we turn is science. And oh, yes, Mick, you're a scientist, you'd say that. But it's true um, because science provides us with a part of the puzzle, a prophetic message of our existential crisis, which is a fancy way of saying 
if we don't do something, uh, we don't turn the ship around, then it's going to get worse. And that's the message of science. Now, it doesn't necessarily always tell you how you do that or give you the strong motivation. I mean, let's take climate change science, for example. It tells you that by the end of century, at the higher range of the scenarios that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses, we can get four degrees Celsius of warming compared to pre-industrial. And science can then tell you, well, that means that huge chunks of land will not be agriculturally viable and will lose coral reefs and various ecosystems will go um, will go belly up, for, for use one of a better term, and carbon sources, uh, sinks will become carbon sources, for example. None of that still informs your value if you think, well, if I can lock myself up in a little bubble or I can go to Mars or I can do whatever else, that I'm okay because I'm a tiny proportion of the global population that can afford to ride it out, if there's any riding it out at all. But you get my picture, right? So you need more than science, but it does a really good job of giving a picture of how things could be. And we're in the scenario, you know, range here. So not talking about how bad it can get if we do nothing is is irresponsible. And I'll say more about that in a second. But now more than ever, we need to return to scripture and repent of our individualism, which really runs through evangelical Christianity. Individualism like reading Romans as if it was all about individual predestination instead of the problem of the, the Jewish people rejecting the Messiah, for example, because we just want to read everything in terms of individualism. And we do that also in our speciesism and our exceptionalism. And, of course, our greed. We can go back to critiquing um, a prosperity doctrine, which I'm sure most middle-class Christians do to some degree, some are just better at it than others. And now more than ever, we need to turn to, in this is in the Australian context, Aboriginal peoples, our sisters and brothers in humility and repentance. Um, now more than ever, we need to listen to the voices of Aboriginal peoples and, and Torres Strait Islander peoples, feeling the impact of climate change and seeing the destruction of country today. And, and I say that, and, and I've read an, another article today talking about this, is that if you were an Aboriginal person 250 years ago and Europeans arrived and they shot your people and they cleared the land and they introduced sheep and cattle and so on and you saw the soil disappear in front of your very eyes, then you're experiencing the end of your world. And if capitalism as we experience it today goes back to mercantile capitalism in the age of quote-unquote discovery, then the logic of what we're seeing now extends back then and the impact that was felt by First Nations people, First Nation peoples around the planet um, is an ongoing experience. And so we can rightly say that the future that we face and the present that we're experiencing now is hard for everybody, but it's been hard for Indigenous peoples for a long time and for people of colour taken from Africa and enslaved and so on. So we need to listen to these voices because they're used to dealing with an end-of-world type narrative and they're used to surviving. And obviously the part of repenting or avoiding the worst of possible futures is not just technological fixes, but repenting of a way of life that or a worldview that we need to separate from our Christianity and our identities that goes back to that period. So you, you can, I say it again, and I say it 
with very little clue of, as how to proceed as a, an individual scholar, that you can't do this sort of stuff without doing it in a post-colonial voice, which means necessarily listening to Indigenous scholars and, and scholars of colour and, you know, you name it, not just other white males, which is not to say stop reading white men or stop listening to me, um, follow me on the journey of becoming more enlightened in, in this fashion and because we need each other. We really do need each other, um, both in what we learn and what we consider to be wise and what we hold in our heart and what we do with our hands. Um, anyway, so March 22nd is a day of lament. Um, probably didn't spend enough time lamenting today, uh, but as science and scripture tells us, it's a day not without hope. Which leads me into a conversation I had with a, somebody I know a while ago. It was about Extinction Rebellion. Now, to jump forward to a conversation I had the other day, my friend Jared McKenna, your friend too, probably, if you're listening to this podcast, you may very well know the man. Uh, he's a peace activist. He's a climate change activist. He's a, a wonderful Christian man. And he got arrested today. And he's been uh, working with Extinction Rebellion. Uh who are an organisation I think are really worth investigating and they have non-arrestable activities you can engage in and no doubt non-arrestable, very, a variety of roles that you can help with. Not everyone's going to be on the front lines. That's a discussion for another time or whether or not you think all Christians should be out there getting arrested. Well, there's a time and a place for all sorts of things. Talk more about that in a second. But and I can't remember how this came up and talking with another Christian friend. And, you know, you have one of those moments where it's like, it's not that I'm going to not associate with you. It's just that you having said that makes me think you've not thought very deeply about it and it makes me wonder whether or not you're more... Uh, some people are more kumbaya-type Christians, if you get what I'm trying to say, and I'm not going to hint at all who it is um, out of respect for them, but they described Extinction Rebellion as, I think, apocalyptic cult or a death cult. And someone else I know today described them as extremists because they disrupted um, their particular activities for the day. I want to respond to a couple of those points. Well, the first is that what's an extremist? We talk about religious extremists and political extremists and so on, those who go on um, taking firearms or explosives and taking other people's lives. Not people who might glue themselves to a surface or chain themselves to something or obstruct traffic because they believe that if they don't do something, then the world will radically change for the worse for everybody. I think uncontrolled, unfettered, growth-driven capitalism is extremist. The idea that we can't change things around because too many white men are making profits out of fossil fuels is extremist. The idea that we can cut through, quote-unquote, green tape as easily as we like because we simply don't value something because it's not human or it's not going to make us money is extremist. The fact that um, artefacts, cultural artefacts that are part of uh, the world's oldest material culture can be blown up for the extraction of resources without any consideration or any great care, is extremist. I don't consider Extinction Rebellion to be extremist. 
What about the charge of a death cult or an apocalyptic cult? Well, clear-eyed prophets in the Hebrew Bible would say, thus says the Lord, this will happen unless you repent. Extinction Rebellion, uh, I think, are calling for hope in action. Let's make our voices clear. Let's not necessarily trust the political process to go on on its own without disruption. I mean, to go back to my example before, that if you cut in half or more the yields of all the major cereal grains in the world because of increasing heat, it's a bit of a disruption for people to starve to death. So if your daily commute is held up for a little while because these protesters uh, are saying the end is nigh, it's time to do something, it's not an apocalyptic cult if they're not rejoicing in the thought or if they're not giving us hope that we can turn the ship around. Greta Thunberg asked politicians to panic. Not because she wants to paralyse them, but because she wants to frighten them into action. Because supposedly the politicians wield the power for change. Too often it's for status quo. So I don't think that Extinction Rebellion strike me as some apocalyptic cult. That's comforting if you're a kumbaya Christian who just wants to hide in platitudes about Christ's return and skip over the groaning in birth pains part. What about breaking the law? Well, very clearly, protesters, if you're gluing yourself to something, if you're obstructing traffic, if you um, transgress is not the word, what is it, uh, trespass, Many of these are really good laws. I know someone who's been arrested for Love Makes Away, sitting in a politician's office and praying for the release of refugees, and being arrested at the Malls Creek coal mine, protesting a coal mine that we don't need, which would destroy forests and farmland and use water, and of course pump more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're breaking laws. Rosa Parks broke laws. Mahatma Gandhi broke laws. MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., broke laws. Were those laws just? Was it entirely uh, necessary for them to do what they did? Just because something is legal doesn't mean it, that it's just. And there's a world of difference between somebody protesting that their rights are being um, suppressed for having to wear a mask so that they don't contract a virus and give it to someone else who doesn't have the same immune system as them, compared to somebody who's stopping traffic, for example, because they're trying to shake the political caste um, into waking up about the future that we face and say it's time for us to transition. So I don't think Extinction or Rebellion are extremists, that there's some kind of apocalyptic cult or that the things that they do are evil or wicked. And we could spend another time, for example, in looking at Romans 13 and asking the question, what does it mean um, to pay taxes and respect to a Caesar and say that God put the Caesar, whatever that might be in the modern parlance or context, into power? When in the first century world, you could read that uh, Caesar was the son of God on the back of every coin, if you could get hold of a Roman coin. 
In other words, it's a great relativizing thing. And so beating people over the head with, oh, you know, that's illegal and Christians shouldn't break the law. Well, I wonder what the cleansing of the temple represents. Would it be causing an affray? Would it be trespassing in modern parlance? So today, or the day just gone, we mark the fact that this country has burnt through its savings for the year and now is going into debt, ecological debt. Uh, I've talked about the fact that there's a, a requirement of repentance of totally rethinking the way in which we do civilization without, I think, repenting of the idea of civilization itself. It's just that it would be nice if it were civilized. And maybe a bit of a shake up, maybe considering getting involved in a group, the Knitting Nanas or Extinction Rebellion or the many other ways in which we can make our voice heard more, writing to your local politician. Or something a bit with a bit more oomph, depending upon your calling and your life situation and so on. There's much more I wanted to say in terms of critiquing this idea of resources um, and our shared creatureliness with even the earth itself. And I touched upon this as the earth is sacred last time, but I'm going to save that for another program. So as you ponder um, this whole idea of Earth Overshoot Day, I want once more to thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.